Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 23. Today, I'm joined by Greg Litzinger, also known as the Bow Hunting Fiend. We're talking public land hunting on the East Coast, buck beds, and much, much more. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to another episode of Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today I am joined by Greg Litzinger, also known as the Bow Hunting Fiend. Uh, Greg hails from New Jersey. We have an East Coast hunter on our hands today, really kind of specializing or focusing on, you know, high pressure public lands. If you think about New Jersey and just the, um, you know, per capita uh, population density, I guess, rather. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty extreme. So any hunting that you would do in that area, you're obviously going to have a lot of challenges in terms of finding uncharted territory or places where folks can't go or, or haven't gone before, uh, which really kind of puts you in a place to go into the most difficult areas and the, in the most undesirable areas. But as we all kind of know, um, a lot of times that's where the big mature deer are hanging out. And Greg has kind of made, you know, what I'll call a living at this point off of going to those places. You know, you'll learn pretty quickly with Greg that uh, he's not a stranger to hard work and the and, and the harder the grind the more the more I think he likes it because um, he knows there's oftentimes a reward at the uh, at the end of that hard work um, where how I kind of ran across Greg to be honest with you was there uh, kind of just ran across him accidentally on Instagram uh, I saw a guy who was really kind of getting after it uh, on public land um, in high pressured areas and he was making videos and putting them on Instagram of, of his scouting trips and kind of taking you along scouts. And I did, I don't know anybody personally who hunts New Jersey regularly. So I was just kind of curious as to what he was encountering. So I kind of followed his, his feed. Uh, he's a great follow on Instagram. And, and then I learned, and then I come to find out also that he has some 
uh, videos of some really nice mature deer that he's managed to take on New Jersey public land. Um, so, you know, of course you'll want to check all that information out here after the podcast, but, uh, you know, Greg's a, a great interview here. Um, really looking forward to sharing some information with you. One thing I will note as well is that, you know, he has a propensity or a knack for kind of focusing in on buck beds, much like a Dan Enfault would, you know, what's kind of interesting is, is that, you know, I did a, an interview not too long ago with, with Dan had him on the show, um, and they hunt similar terrain, but in different areas, you know, so Dan's really kind of hunting, you know, that, uh, uh, Midwestern Wisconsin swamp lands, but also hunting some hilly, hilly country. Um, Greg's kind of getting after it in the same way around here where he's hunting some, you know, some, some swampy kind of ground. And, uh, you know, obviously this area around Philadelphia, New Jersey is a relatively low line. So you definitely get into some salt marshes and stuff and Greg's hammering that, that kind of terrain, as well as kind of getting into some of the more, uh, mountain or ridgy type of terrain that we have in this part of the U S as well. So without further ado, I think I'll get Greg on the line. But before I do that, um, I just want to make mention that I did have a few technical audio difficulties throughout the uh, throughout the interview. So uh, please uh, bear with me uh, through a few of those. And uh, before we get Greg on the line, I think we'll take a quick break to hear a word from our partners at Whitetail Institute of North America for the Whitetail Institute Food Plot Tip of the Week. And today, John shares a few tips to help when selecting a forage. When it comes to selecting a forage, uh, you need to take a number of factors into account. Uh, now, before I get into this, we made this easy because wrote, wrote a little, I wrote a little computer program that's on our website, and you can run through three or four questions, and it will lead you to the ideal forage for each plot that you have. Uh, you'd want to go through it one at a time. It's at the product selector link at whitetailinstitute.com up in the header. Uh, but the, the way I look at it is what you're doing is you're putting everything you could possibly plant into a mental bucket and you're running down three or four questions. And when you get to the end of those yes, no questions, you have the ideal forage or forages for that specific plot, the conditions of that plot, and for what you want that forage in that plot to do. Uh, in the context of your overall food plot system. If you want it to be an annual for hunting or a perennial to be there year-round, all that gets into account. Uh, the first thing you look at is whether or not you can access the site with equipment. Uh, if you can, then you haven't moved anything from the bucket. You're, you're, you still have a full slate of, of options. If you can't get in there and till the soil to work up the seed bed, then it's best to go with a forage that is designed to flourish even without a lot of uh, a lot of seedbed prep, uh, we have no, ours are Imperial Whitetail No Plow, uh, Secret Spot, and Bow Stand. Uh, if the first question I ask folks is, "Can you till the soil?" If they can't, I put them right to those products. If you can till the soil, then you go to the next question: Are you able to, and will you go in there and spray a food plot for grass and weed control in the spring and mow it? Uh, some folks uh, don't have the equipment to do that. Other folks may live too far from their hunting properties, and they're just not going to do it. Well, if you're not going to do it, then the best thing is is to stick with an annual, because that's something that you don't have to maintain. And if you don't control grass, especially in your perennial food plots, it'll take them over. So you've got to commit to do that. Then the next question is, what do you want that, that forage to do in the context of your overall food plot system? For instance, if you have a big plot that you maintain all the time as a perennial, and you have that in the center of your property, say, and 
you got you know where the bedding areas are. You could put stagger smaller annual plots for hunting season between the bedding area and the feeding area, uh, or the perennial plot, because the the deer are going to head to the big perennial. If you don't hunt it, they'll start heading there uh, uh, in the evenings and heading back in the mornings, and you can hunt the hunting plots and do real well. All right, welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today on the show, I am joined by the one, the only, Greg Litzinger. Uh, some of you may also know him as the Bow Hunting Fiend. Uh, you may see some future nicknames coming up, like the Come Up Kid or the 25 Year Overnight Success Story that he and I kind of batted around the other day. But either way, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with his work. He's a big time public land hunter, uh, gets the job done. He hails from the, uh, the Northeast area. Super stoked to have him on. Um, I know he's been kind of making, making the circuit and he's in a, he's in hot demand cause this dude knows how to get it done on the, uh, high pressure public land and super happy to have him here. So, uh, how you doing, Greg? How's things going? Man, that's a, that's a, that's a good intro. I feel, uh, feel a little, uh, a little overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, I'll, I'll be sure to underwhelm you here shortly. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. A level playing field that's right that's right so i i know man i've been following you for a little while and i'm sure there's some folks out there that are listening that you know know a little bit about your background and so forth but if you wouldn't mind for those who aren't uh as familiar with who you are and what you do uh, if, if you could just give us a little bit of background about yourself how you started hunting where you're from you know what you do for a living those sort of things all right yeah yeah you know lifelong jersey uh south jersey resident my dad was outdoorsman you know, hunting, hunting, fishing, camping was pretty much in my blood at an early age. And we fished. I mean, I grew up on the water, so I, I fished quite a bit. And then as I got older, you know, I took an interest to more outdoorsy hunting aspect of being outside. And once, you know, I was able enough, or I should say strong enough to pull a bow back because I was a, a very tiny 14-year-old. Uh, preach. So I, I struggled yeah, I struggled to get 35 pounds back at 14. Like it was a chore just to get that illegal weight back. And I've pretty much been hooked ever since public land. I had a few pieces of private, but just always public for the most part. Nice. Um, so, and just, you know, uh, thankful for my dad that we didn't have, you know, the big high end farms or anything like we, you know, we went out to where everybody else went out and we you know, got it done and just kind of addicted to that rush of the high pressure areas, I guess I've dabbled in privates here and there, but I always come back to public because it's unscripted. It's, you know, high risk, high rewards areas, which I thoroughly enjoy, but, you know, and as I've gotten older, you know, I've, you know, Still, still in South Jersey. I bounced around here and there, but I'm always, you know, Jersey kid, I guess, at heart. I don't think I'll ever leave. I mean, I say that, but who knows? <laughs> the right price, I guess, I could leave. <laughs> uh, but I'm a by day. I'm a maintenance mechanic for UPS. Thirteen years, um, and I gravitated toward that line of work as maintenance as. I just like to figure things out. And I do believe that's why I'm good at, you know, hunting and fishing, you know, I think, I mean, that's what I tell myself anyway. I don't know if that's true or not, but I love when things don't work and I figure them out. So I do believe that gives me a leg up when it comes to fishing and hunting. 
because I can sit there and I can break it down and not get frustrated and, and think the problem through and, you know, get results. Nice. Yeah. That's a, that's a critical component of it, man. I'm, I'm what you would call mechanically challenged. Um, it's, <laughs> it was one of those things where it, no matter how hard I tried, it just didn't seem to, uh, it just didn't seem to be in the cards from me. I actually adopted a, uh, a, a nickname at one point called Mr. Uh, Mr. Goodwrench. Um, just because, uh, yeah, uh, just cause I was that bad with, with, with wrenches. It was, you know, if I, if I managed to fix something, it was a, a little bit of a miracle. But, uh, so how was, uh, you know, speaking of hunting public land and getting after it in the, in the, in, in your home state there, how was your 2016 season? Did you, uh, have some luck? Oh, it was rough on the, uh, the antler front. Uh, good on, I killed three older mature does. So, but as far as, you know, into the antler, it was, uh, a humbling rough season. I, if, quick story, same tree. I had two in, instances for evening marsh hunt. One was early September third week in the season maybe i got to this marsh island you know the way out in the salt marsh it's i don't know 2 30 i'm literally put my first <laughs> uh the, i used the lone wolf you know sticks stand i put the first set of uh first stick on i climb up and i throw the strap around to put the hook on i hang the stand and there's a you know 130 inch caliber you know eight or nine pointer staring at me 10 yards away and I was literally you know, 15 minutes late getting to this area. And he blew out, which blew the whole area out. And I just sat there. I, I think I might have cried, actually. Uh, <laughs> that, was a, that was a rough one to, rough one to take because, like some folks, like I don't see many big deer. If I see a deer with, you know, a mature deer, odds are I'm killing it. Right. And if I see, like I said, uh, on my wall, if I see a deer one time, if I don't kill, I never see it again. All the right. places I've hunted, there's only one deer on my wall that I've seen twice. <laughs> so if I don't get it done the first opportunity, well, I know her. Nice knowing you. Right. You know, Arrivederci. <laughs> Arrivederci, baby. And, <laughs> and there was uh, another instance, because I, you know, being a self-filmer, hunting the buck bed, you know, it was late, late October, early November. And his buck come in, like I was on him, cutting his track a few times. I was like, man, this is it. He's going to be here that day. I get out there super early, and he comes back uh, just a little too early. I could see him, but the camera couldn't see him, and this deer was pretty much right underneath me. You know, I just had to sit there and just watch him feed around and scent check this little area with a bunch of does hanging out before I went into bed. And that was a, that was a tough pill to swallow because – Play enough light to shoot, but not enough camera light. Right. Um, another instance, in the, like I said, in the same tree in the marsh, same setup. Get out there, 15 minutes too late. It was like deja vu. <laughs> and this time I didn't get a chance to put the you know, stick on. I'm going to get to the tree. I was like, whew. And I could hear him coming. And I'm like, this is happening again. It's like Groundhog Day. I felt like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. <laughs> and... I throw a stick on real fast. I get up, and sure enough, there, you know, I seen he blew, and I seen bone running away. And, you know, definitely a mature deer. I don't know exact, you know, I didn't get a good look, but it was definitely, a, you know, had some decent time length. And, and that was pretty much it, buck-wise. Wow. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, I can. A lot of. Uh, 
lot of oppor- uh, <laughs> lot of opportunities there uh, that, that just kind of it's so just, hard talking about it right now. <laughs> I bet, man, it's opportunities that just kind of slip through your slip through your fingers. But I, I say this, man, it's you know a lot of folks that hunt public land to be hard pressed to see one decent deer in a year, and um, I mean that's the one thing that I you know have noticed about you. It's you you have a knack for just kind of you know, finding those right, those right spots. And it comes through, you know, just by following you, it's like, I know this, it comes through hard work, preparation, diligence, and just putting your time in and grinding. Um, and I think that's what, you know, a lot of folks that yeah. who follow you really appreciate about your approach. You know, it's not a, it's not given, um, it's, it's a hundred percent earned. Um, and I think people really appreciate that, but you know, you mentioned you, you know, you're from South Jersey, um, you know, and that's, you know, where you kind of spend a lot of your time, but do you, are there some other States you hunt or do you hunt predominantly, uh, the New Jersey area or do you venture out to, uh, some other States? Uh, I hunted Kentucky for a few years back. Uh, actually before I bought my house, I, I, I did a lot of hunting, you know, before I became a homeowner, money was readily available for things. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I did. I hunted Lewis County quite a bit. Uh, missed a beautiful 140 plus inch 10 pointer, um, which still haunts me to this day. Had that it was directly underneath me. It was so thick. I couldn't get a shot. And by the time he exposed himself, he was like 40 yards. And that was long before I could shoot that distance constantly. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this shot. I practiced 40 yards in the yard and I just shot like slow motion. The arrow goes and I'm watching my white fletching turn. I'm like, this is really gonna shoot right underneath him. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that was a, that was a tough one there. Really bitter pill to swallow because he was literally, you know, directly right underneath me. And I watched him for 10 minutes or so. Uh, that was a stinker there, but I went back there a few times. Some in, you're running some, some other bucks, but Kentucky is, is, it's a good state. A lot of of good deer in that Northeast corner. Nice. And I've hunted PA a few times, Delaware, New York, but pretty much just New Jersey. Uh, there's so much different terrain in New Jersey. Uh, I don't really need to go to another state to hunt. You know, I can go up north mountains, you know, go down to Atlantic County, hunt them salt marshes, or even, you know, down Delaware Bay, hunt salt marshes, hunt the big woods, you know, the little urban woodlots. New Jersey is a pretty good state just for the diversity. So, you know, if I'm not tagging out, like if I haven't punched my buck tag, you know, by October 30th, odds are I'm not going to punch one (laughs) because I'm a... I'm a terrible rut hunter. That's for sure. (laughs) Nice. So, I mean, I know, and and the thing is, is that, you know, just from following you and I'd mentioned like how much time you put in, um, you know, you, you might scout just from following your, your social, social feeds. You might scout more than absolutely anybody I've ever, I've ever personally known and maybe anyone I've ever seen. Um, so how many properties typically in an off season are just, properties in general do you scout during one off season do you have kind of like a ballpark number that you usually end up hitting and and two this is kind of a two-part question knowing that you're also a family guy you know normal guy full-time job with a little one at home and stuff you know how do you manage to find time to spend that much time in the in the timber scouting Mm, yeah that's i i have my main properties i've always dabbled in like and i come and go on properties uh like I'll hunt a property hard for two or three years. You know, if, if I'm not feeling it, I, I kind of like move on somewhere else. But 
all in all, I probably have 12 different areas I hunt, have access to hunt. That's within about an hour driving, like 45 minutes to an hour is like my max, um, unless I'm going up north or something. Like I'll drive an hour, you know, to go hunt some big woods just, you know, just because I feel like hunting big woods, I guess. I don't know. But right. I try, you know, I'll, like I said, I'll, I'll scout an area hard for, you know, hunt it and scout it for two years. And I kind of get bored of it unless I'm really on something, like unless I've seen something or it's like the signs just calling me like, you have to hunt here. Do not leave. Then, you know, I'll stick out and grind it out. But with New Jersey, I mean, South Jersey, the, the pressure in areas also fluctuates. You know, like there's this thunder by May. It's, you know, four or 5,000 acres. I mean, it gets hit hard by everybody. Uh, but certain areas, okay, hit hard and it just dies out. And if I just, if I know an area is going to be quiet, I'll go in there and put some time in. You know, and then if pressure comes, I kind of back out and move on. Because like you, if anybody's hunting long enough, you know, a deer, they really don't really pressure too much. Right. Uh, they'll take pressure. I mean, they're born in pressure. They don't really know anything else but pressure. But there is pressure, and then there's like heavily pressure. There is like two forms of pressure because you know we get hikers, bird hunters, rabbit hunters. So it, it fluctuates. You know, if I see if I a lot of human pressure, you know, I back out and go somewhere else where I don't have to worry about, all right, is this guy blowing deer out? You know, if this guy, you know, walking through that bedding area, because a lot of times people walk through bedding areas, but they don't even know they're bedding areas. Right. You're like, how come I'm not seeing any deer? Next thing you know, you see boot tracks all over the place. And these people are just marching right through spot where a buck might be bedding. And you're like, oh, and I can't get mad at them because they probably didn't know <laughs> it's a buck bed, right. you know? So it's, and we here in Jersey, we allow baiting, which is um, rough. Right. Because deer don't need to travel very far if there's food, you know, every couple hundred yards. I mean, right. deer, they're naturally browsers. I mean, they'll eat sticks. They don't need food, you know, literally dry sticks. Right. But if you got food, you know, every couple hundred yards or every, you know, three bait piles every quarter mile, well, those don't need to move, which in turn the books. Well, why do I need to move? Right. So it, it, it adds a whole nother wrinkle where you get, you know, set up on quite a bit. You know, I was having a conversation with a guy at work and I mean, that happened a half a dozen times to me this year, get set up and light comes and you're like, Oh, there's a ladder stand bait pile that wasn't there, you know, two weeks ago, but it's there now. And it's like, eh, well, time to go somewhere else. Right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, how do you, so what's your, what's your take now? I, I know that you're kind of experiencing it just from, you know, kind of walking in and, you know, these in New Jersey allows baiting, but what's your kind of feeling or take on baiting? Do you have like a personal, you know, opinion about it one way or the other? I'm not a fan. <laughs> this is a politically correct way of <laughs> saying it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I do believe, I mean, I guess it serves a purpose if you have the facilities to do it like public, it, it doesn't really serve a purpose. Like for me, me personally, cause from what I see, like there's button bucks. I mean, this is a button buck. It's a few months old. He will cut a track of a human or my track. First thing he does is look up in a tree. Now, mind you, this deer is a few months old. He smells any type of danger. He's looking up in a tree. Mm-hmm. Good Lord. That yep. deer gets four or five. is going to be untouchable. Yep. Like it, it, 
I mean, because I see it firsthand, and, and most people say it now with cameras. They, they're out there, you know, every week dumping bait, checking cameras. I mean, they're really stinking up that area. They got one stand or possibly two stands, you know, and they're coming in a half hour for light, you know, leaving, you know, pretty much 15 minutes after light. And it, it, it can make a difficult situation even more difficult. Right. Um, but like I said, some people, they, they work a lot, so I can't really fault somebody for baiting. And I, I know some guys that kill some big deer over bait. I mean, some hammers. But they do it, I guess, in a more efficient manner. But for me, I just, I wasn't raised hunting over bait. Um, I knew, like I said, uh, God bless the father. You know, he's at a young age. You know, I knew how to age tracks, you know, deer sign, you know, deer, you know, deer droppings. You know, look for the subtle things that people don't really do now. Because people see buckside now, first thought, put a camera. I'll come back in a week. Well, that's. I don't have, you know, for me, that goes against everything that I was kind of taught growing up. Like, you, you don't really take the easy way out. You know, you, you figure it out, you know, with, with just your six inches between your ear. And you can become a better hunter in the long run. Because there's consequences to trying to make it easy. Right. You know, at, at some point in time, at some point in time, you got to pay the piper. You right. know, because if you got private land, you know, you, you bait, you lose your land. Now you got to go into, you know, the real world or, or a different scenario where there's a lot more pressure people. You're not going to get the same results as you did when you had your, you know, your 500 acres to yourself. If you're on a, you know, a hundred acre track with five guys. Yeah. Good luck with that one, dude. Right. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just going to take my chance. On the I'll take my chance on the 2000 acres of public. Right. You know, I, I it's funny you it's funny you say that because I've kind of had a similar experience like you know my, my father-in-law has some has some land and I've hunted that for you know when I first moved back to Pennsylvania I hunted that because I was just kind of getting back into back into hunting and you know it was a group of guys to go hunt with and stuff like that and then you know I just I realized that there were so many people on that piece of land hunting that I was better off heading to public ground where I could kind of try to get away from people you know because there's 200 acres, but you have X amount of guys hunting. It's like, it's just like hunting a really super high pressure piece of public land. Only there's no pockets of, of clean space to go find. Um, so I was kind of yep. in that similar situation. So that, I mean, I, I went, I ended up going to Ohio last year and hunting public land. I'd never been to before. And honestly I had the time of my life <laughs> and it kind of changed my whole, um, my whole perspective to where it's, uh, I spent more time scouting public land this year, um, this off season. And then during the late season, hunting public land, just kind of scouting, um, you know, for, for this upcoming year, if, if nothing else, uh, just trying to find some new parcels to get onto. So a hundred percent agree with you, but I was just kind of mentioned scouting while I was hunting here during the late season. And I want, I know you scout all year round, but what time of year do you typically find gives you the best, best Intel for future hunting seasons? Like, is it this time of year? Or are you really kind of focusing during the season, kind of building a plan for the following season? Like what's your approach to that? Yeah. As far as you, uh, a lot of tracks that I, I can, once I know an area, it's, I've been there a few years, I can kind of take a quick walk, you know, and any time of year and know what's going on. But predominantly, especially here in Jersey, it's after gun season. Like I love finding new rubs, you know, a mature buck when he, you know, after gun season, be it because there's a lot of driving, a lot of clubs, they do, they push a lot of property around here. If I can find active rubs after December and I will mark them on my GPS 
and then I will search for beds near those active buffs because a lot I found personally after December gun season, if the deer's still around, that's a new bed I want to know about because he's forced out of wherever he might have been, and this is where he feels safe. So I'll mark that on my GPS, like trim up a tree, and I'll go sit it like blindly, you know, and walk in there, you know, middle of October or beginning of October, and give it a whirl. Uh, but to December and January, for me, December, January, and February are key months um, because the deer is still kind of on that pressured beds, you know, pressured bed syndrome where it's not really food dependent, it's survival dependent. And as you target deer that are, you know, four or five, six years old, survival instinct, unless it's during the rut. So if I can find a bed that's, you know, active in December, January, February, for me, probably at a primary bed, maybe in the future, you know, right. and by, by, like I said, middle, middle March, April, I'm pretty much just turning up some trees or fine tuning my, my spots, uh, for the upcoming fall. Cause I find more areas than I have time to actually get an entry and exit route up for like this year. I'm probably going to, I'm going to fall short on my goal of getting all my trees and all my beds and things trimmed up because I just don't have the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, which, which stinks. <laughs> I got a couple banger areas and it's like going to haunt me that I'm never going to get down there to trim it up. And it's like, mm, I know I can kill a deer by, I just don't have the time to do it. Hey, hey, hey I'm always, I'm always up for buck bed donation. I can get a Jersey tag. I don't live too far from you. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but speaking yeah, it's, of, it's, it's crazy. Speaking of buck beds, like I, that's kind of one of one of the things I kind of found most interesting. You know, whenever I first started following you, and you know, you and you know, I've of course had Dan Enfault on before. I kind of put you guys in similar categories where it's like you know, you're really getting it done by finding you know buck beds, and it's one of those things where I think um, is this, is an acquired skill. You know, finding not just where deer are bedding, but like where you're finding mature buck beds. So. Whenever you're going to find them, you know, looking for mature buck beds and you're scouting and, and, and so forth, like what types of things are you looking for specifically that's telling you that an area might be ripe to hold a, a mature buck bed in it? Are there, are there specific telltale signs you're looking for? Uh, for me, it's either there's going to be at least one giant rub, like when I say giant tall, like uh, not necessarily the diameter tree, because I've seen some little bucks you know, rub trees and the, if the trees only got, you know, 18 inches of rub and it's a, it could be a giant oak, I don't get excited over that because it could be, you know, a year and a half old deer that's just, you know, got a lot of testosterone and he's going to dig into it. I look for, you know, if I, if I'm finding rubs at least like chest high, you know, I get excited because I'm like, all right, at least a deer super wide has come through this area, you know, a few times. Mm-hmm. And if I can cut like a four finger trek, I'm all over the area. I will search that thing eight hours. So I find, you know, a, a, a possible scenario that might be beneficial to him bedding there. Cause I'll find a lot of beds. Like, I can go into any property and find beds almost instantaneous, but are they buck beds? Are they the buck I'm after beds? And it's just, as I've gotten more into this, it's almost like a gut feeling, you know, uh, you can look at a bed and be like, yeah, it's just not it. You know, it, it doesn't, 
it doesn't call to me like, yeah, this is it. You know, you, you look for, you know, the depression, the dirt, the hair, there's gotta be big tracks, you know, and big droppings. Also, if I find big droppings outside of a, I get excited. Yeah. Don't judge me. I get excited over the deer poop, but all right, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, because big deer, you know, they predominantly have bigger tracks. They predominantly have, you know, larger droppings. Um, so that, that there is, is key for me, big drops and big tracks, you know, and there's gotta be at least one big rub and it's gotta be, and I can't say it's gotta be secluded because I've found beds. I mean, buck beds and I've, I've seen the deer better there. I've kicked them up there like huge monstrosity of deer, you know, 50 yards from the parking lot. They will bed watching where everybody parks. Cause they know people, you know, us humans were consistent. Like we're consistently lazy we will take the easiest way we'll park the truck the same spot same time and this buck will watch that area and if nobody comes he'll go about his merry way you know and if somebody comes oh he goes back another way i don't think they necessarily shy away from high pressure areas they've just fine-tuned their skills to avoid detection you know right. it's, it's mind-blowing how you know they're like ninjas like it's just like oh like well, you've been hunting long enough. All of a sudden, you look to your right. There's a bunch of deer. You're like, how does it? How did they just get here? There's no noise, no sound. It's like they were just like, you know, just magically appeared out of nowhere, and they can magically disappear, you know, out of nowhere. Right. It's it's, it's crazy how good they are. Yeah, I mean, it's but it's, yeah, I mean, it's, how quiet they are is <laughs> is insane. You know, it's you're 100 percent right. It's like how many times you've been sitting in a tree stand and all of a sudden just turn and there's there's a deer standing there. It you know or you know, the, the classic, you hear a squirrel and it sounds like there's like four deer coming, you know, and that thing weighs like three pounds, <laughs> you know, and you can hear yeah. that thing coming a mile away, yeah. but the, you know, but the 130 inch buck that's rolling through the woods, you turn to your right and he's five yards from you and you never heard him approach. It's, yeah, it's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Another, yeah. Another thing is bed size. Like I have a tape measurement when I scout 40, 40 inches is pretty much the minimum size bed I hunt. Um, and I, I've hunted smaller ones, but I don't ever get that good feeling. Um, because I, I don't necessarily use trail cameras. I mean, I have used them and I use them. I mean, I'll put them out in September this year and I put them in February. Like I don't really use those things on a, I mean, actually I've never used them to deer. So I don't really use cameras to you know, gauge deer size. I look at rubs tracks you know like you see a big rub and a big track i mean i don't need a camera to tell me it's a large deer like i can right. put one and one together like hey that equals two right uh, like i get excited <laughs> for that right so but yeah i said bed bed size large tall rubs you know and and there's got to be some other telltale signs you know if i find some bushes there might not be any trees like in the marsh there might not be any trees but if i find saplings you know that are you know, the size of my thumb just snapped, you know, 20 off the ground. That requires leverage that a little deer can't do. So I should, I make sure, you know, I mark my GPS and I try and get back there and search that area because, you know, bushes that are destroyed, that to me, that's just, you know, that is the best sign I find. <laughs> right. So what about, mm. I mean, 
you know, I, I know that, you know, I were texting back and forth. We were talking uh, about the, the marshes that you're, that you get into and you hunt and scout. And I definitely want to hear a little bit about your approach to that and what you're kind of looking for. Cause to me, that's something completely foreign, but what about, you know, I know you also hunt some hill country and some ridges and, and, and some steep areas and stuff like that. So what are you looking for specifically when you're hunting that type of terrain, when you're, when you're in hilly or in a, you know, or near like a river where you're hunting that, you know, up the, uh, the steep side of a river bottom. Um, what are, what types of things are you looking for? Where yeah. are you finding buck beds in that, in that kind of terrain? Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Like I'm, I'm a little bit different than than most guys that that hunt hill. Like cause here in New Jersey, like if there's any type of point or any, you know, it's, you got a finger that comes off. Odds are there's a hiking trail, so the bedding isn't going to be there. I find a lot of bedding. By finding, you know, get up to that upper one third, and you know it might fluctuate here or there, but you'll find a side hill trail, and you'll find like the rub lines and scrapes are normally in that general vicinity. And I will find an area where three, four uphill trails kind of come up within fifty or sixty yards, and a lot of times there'll be a bed within you know eyesight of where these trails kind of come up, and that is just from you know, years of doing it, like actually stumbled upon an accident, like, you know, just walking the ground. Um, because like the, the ridges I hunt up here, like the mountain, it's, it's pretty much just a straight mountain. You know, it runs, you know, Southeast, the North or Southwest, Northeast. And there's a few little points, but not much terrain break. It's pretty much like straight up and kind of straight down. And there's not a lot of, you know, terrain var- variations but I find all these beds, you know, in just weird, weird places, you know, where a lot of uphill trails kind of meet. I think it's just where Buck can you know, look and see, you know, what's coming up the trail, either, you know, predators or females or your humans or whatever it might be. Um, I've scouted like land in PA and it's more, you know, typical points with no hiking trails. And there's, you know, you, you find those beautiful mountain beds. It's just like, Purse up right next to a tree. It's down the dirt. It's got depression. He's got you know the perfect drop and come up you know from you know beneath him. You got you know one entry and one exit. Like it's it's beautiful, but a lot of spots in New Jersey, it's it's not so. It's you you look at it and you're like I can't believe they're doing it this way. And it <laughs> and maybe it's from pressure or or I don't I don't know. But they bend a little bit differently than you would think that I found in other states like Kentucky. Right. In Pennsylvania is a lot different than Jersey. Right. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I'm picking up what you're saying there. Cause I mean, Pennsylvania, it's you're, you're right. It's like, if I'm looking for like a bedding area, right. For, for a buck, it's, you know, I'm, and I'm hiking an area. You know, I did it whenever I was hiking a piece of public land out by my hometown, you know, I, I looked on a topo map and was kind of tracking, you know, what I was looking for. And I found a little bit of a terrain change, um, and a point, and so that's where I started and I walked there and mm-hmm. sure enough, uh, buck bed, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, 
it was, uh, you know, it was a telltale sign and, and, and I thought I knew what I was going to find. And sure enough, I found it. Um, it sounds like yeah. where you're at, it's, you're dealing with, um, and this was kind of out in the middle of nowhere too, um, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, out in the, you know, uh, yeah. you, you know, absolutely, you know, kind of super rural area. So there's no, there's no hiking. There's anything yeah. that's going on in those areas is, is, is hunting. If, if that, you know, there's even places out there, public land that I've found <laughs> yeah. that isn't even getting touched by hunters for, you know, for a lot of, a lot of, uh, in a lot of instances at least. But so yeah, I, I know, you know, you, you hunt a lot of, you know, salt marshes and swamp kind of areas. And like I said before, this is something that's completely foreign to me. So I was really interested in hearing your perspective on how you approach this, because just being honest here, it's like, I need an absolute education when it comes to hunting swamps. I would love to hunt some swamps and marshes <laughs> just because I've never done it before. Um, but you know, to kind of take me through your approach when you're hunting swamps and marshes, looking for those buck beds and just how you kind of approach that hunt overall. Yeah, like you said, because the, the salt marshes, or, or any marsh for that matter, frag, it's it's easy to locate trails. You look up, you pull up on Google Earth, you know, you find those remote pockets of timber, you know, off the main island. And if, if you, you know, zoom in enough, you can actually see the deer trails. You know, you see them really wide and, you know, some really faint. And just find those remote pockets that it's either difficult to get to, it requires a lot of, like, if it requires knee boots, odds are other hunters are going to hunt it at some point in time. So I look for spots where high tide is going to come. I need hip waders or even possibly chest waders. Um, and that's just, you know, high tide deters a lot of people. They only get their stuff wet, you know, stand clothes. The, the, I mean, it gets on your clothes. It, the, the stench, you know, that salt smell, it's hard to get out. So a lot of guys worry about, you know, stinking up their set, you know, their clothes and their fancy bow and arrows and stuff like that. So for me, if it's hard for people to get to, I'm all about that. Right. Be it distance, you know, I got one spot. It's, I had about probably half mile walk like through, you know, knee deep swamp, slushy salt marsh. And it early season. And the bugs are so bad. I mean, you hate life, but <laughs> the payoff is, I mean, I've seen some absolute giants. I've never been able to capitalize in the area, but I've seen some, I mean, absolute mega giants. And it's like, I just run out of daylight. And it's like, even early season, that buck just, he doesn't move until it's dark. You know, like sooner or later, I'm going to, you know, he's going to slip up and I'm going to be there. I'm like, Hey, surprise, I'm here. But <laughs> yeah, just, Either some type of waterway, big ditch, um, or distance. And I find these little, you know, pieces of timber, uh, little, uh, a lot of them down by me have oaks. If I find like a larger piece that there's oak trees on it, odds are I bust me bad on it. You know, so it's like great. Or you might find like a little, the islands are daisy chains. Well, the big island where I might be has the oaks and there might be a few smaller islands. Well, the deer are doing the furthest one away, so I can kind of sneak in. The deer come in for food, you know, for food, and pretty much like, hey, what's up? Slam dunk. Right. <laughs> you know, but. Nice. So, and, uh, I mean, in my mind, that's how it works, but odds are it doesn't really work all that well <laughs> in real life. But uh, I know, right, man? It's like our best laid plans. I mean, they always seem to blow up in our in yeah, our face. Exactly. In my brain, the plans work perfectly, and then real then reality hits, and it's like, 
what just happened? How did that deer get behind me and blow? I don't understand. Right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. What? Uh, so what? What are you looking for for buck beds there? Like where are you finding buck beds in those in those areas? If you're if you know if you're talking hill country and you're kind of looking at that that classic one third you know, up the, up the ridge. Um, yeah. you know, I, I know that you're saying in Jersey, you know, it runs a little bit differently just because of the, the terrain and, and, and the, maybe it's the pressure that's causing them to kind of bed a little bit differently, but you're still looking at that top one third, which is, is pretty, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of used to that kind of approach or that would be something that people would kind of feel familiar with. But when you're talking about salt marshes, yeah. right, it's like, you're not, you don't have that terrain change to kind of guide you. So what are you looking for in a, in yeah. a buck bed when you're talking about those marshes? Yeah, it's isolated little patch of islands. Um, it could even mean just a, like I found them in. I found deer bedding on muskrat mounds. I mean, I found them bed in the weirdest places. Um, I've seen them bed actually. You know, I've seen bucks bed in you know like low just the tidal like the the tidal uh, mud. You know, like right on the edge of the thing. Like they'll just bed down in it because it's warm. I guess I, I I don't really know. Like they will bed in the weirdest places, and sometimes. Like the you know the quintessential the last island out. Well, there'll be a sand on there. Somebody's coming in by boat, you know, or somebody's actually making that trek in the morning, which I don't even know how that's possible. Without blowing out every deer in the world getting to it, but right. And they'll just be you know they are very good at avoiding detection and knowing what people do. Um, and I've like said they they just bed in weird peculiar places. Hmm. And. A lot of times you get lucky. I, I stumble upon a good bed, but it's where you wouldn't think it would be. It's on an island, but it's like the island closest to the mainland. And then you're like, why don't you bed here? There's still like an island way out there. Well, obviously either he don't need to bed that far away <laughs> right. or there's somebody else out there, be it duck hunters or, or you know, whatever it might be, a bald eagle nest or something. I don't know. Maybe they're afraid to get back by an eagle. I don't, right. I don't know. But just... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of, uh, I said, just a lot of walking through the marsh and finding, you know, an area that's not going to be flooded during high tide. And that's the key. Like that, if you get something that's uh, up a foot on the tidal marsh every now and again, there'll be an island that's just a little bit higher. That's like a gold mine. Right. Uh, those deer will just flock to that thing during the high tide. Because another thing with hunting salt marshes, <laughs> I've made them stick a drive in 45 minutes and not checking the tide charts. You get out there and it's like a super high tide. You're like, well, this not good. I just drove all out here for nothing. Or it's, I guess that's the better because version. Than the deer, being, I mean, go out there. I was going to say, I guess that's better than the opposite yeah. version, which is being in your tree stand when the tide comes in and you're kind of stuck. Yeah. But before, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> funny, quick story. Uh, two years ago, I was sitting on this remote Island, um, right off the mainland, actually it's a small little Island. Cedar swamp cedars, like it's a beautiful spot. And there's a remote island out about 100 yards away. I mean, there's just a trail that's in. Mean, if you walk in it, it's over your rubber boots. The deer have been using it so long. But the tide came in, and I hear this deer coming because it's like, you know, the tide's really tall. Like I'm looking down the bottom, I'm like, man, that's like a foot of water underneath at the base of the tree. It's one of them super high tides. And this deer's pushing so much water. It was the, he was just, you know, just moving a lot of volume. And it, came through like he was dark to shoot i couldn't film him like i could see a bone i don't know how big it was but i mean the the water was like almost up to his brisket i don't know i'm like looking at the deer it's like i have to walk out of this and there's a lot of it where i'm crawling my hands and knees like i walked out of that night like i mean i was soaked i, I shot my boat on my back 
and I drug my stand. He had my backpack and put the bow on it, and I was dragging my stand. I mean, I was covered in, you know, in water. I was literally, you know, elbows deep in water, you know, crawling out. <laughs> Terrible. This was a horrible experience. You should have brought some some scuba gear, man. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you make those mistakes like, ah, oh, it's good. It's not that bad. And uh, you don't pay attention to the, the, the tide charts, and you're left, you know, getting soaked. Right. Good times. So – so we talked kind of through what you're looking for in hill country and we talked through your approach whenever you hit, when you hit those marshes, what is, so whenever you're setting a tree stand, when Greg's going to, to the timber and he's going to, he's going to hang a set, like, what are you looking for in a stand location? Like, what are those things you're kind of trying to, when you're trying to pinpoint the tree you want to get up in? Like, how do you select your location? You're going to hang a set. Um, for my beds, I get, I started off like 120 yards away. You know, and I, I keep getting closer every year. Like, I'm up about 70 yards away. For me, that seems to be I can catch them during daylight, which makes it difficult because a lot of times there's not much for trees. And you got, like, these little – I mean, I got the lone wolf, so I'll sit in the tree. But some of my trees are literally <laughs> – I'm pretty much setting the stand at the base of the tree and sitting in it because <laughs> the trail's, you know, going to be, you know, 10 yards away, and I'm basically sitting on the ground. I'll look at whatever – as close as I can get that bed where I feel comfortable, which is normally like 10 yards. So if I can get a, a good tree, you know, 10, 10 foot up or so, I got good back cover. I, I'm not going to get a skyline. That's great. Other times I'm basically using my stand that's on the ground. <laughs> you know, wow. so I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll be a foot off the ground. Right. Like whatever, whatever I feel is going to make that hunt a success. And sometimes that's, backfired because I've had deer, you know, deer just magically appear. Like I've had them literally come right to me in the reeds and I'm literally like sitting on the ground and it's like, well, this is going to end horribly because <laughs> you, you can't move. And they're literally coming out. I've had them come out. Like I kept coming out with my arrow and it's like, well, the doe comes out and she's literally, you know, arms reach, you know, an arm's length away. And that's, uh, always for a good time. Yeah. You know? you- you could just you could just wrestle one. You know what I mean? You could you could change yeah, your name from the neck <laughs> You could just I'm gonna go, go Rambo on them. <laughs> right? You could change your name from the bow hunting fiend to uh, uh, Greg Litzinger, the deer wrestler. You know, I don't think anyone's coined yeah. that one yet. I think you'd have it all to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and like I don't mind hunting the ground. Like a lot of people, I, I ran a couple old timers. All they do is hunt from the ground, like especially in some of these high pressure area marshes that I hunt. And he said, and they said, he goes, if a deer's been around four years, he knows trees are danger. So he avoids trees during daylight almost all the time. And these guys kill some, you know, they hunt with recurves and longbows and they kill some beautiful deer all hunt from the ground. So I kind of adapted that with my stand. Like I'll use my stand to, you know, just give me that little. You know, I'll only be, you know, six inches off the ground, but it's enough I can actually stand on my stand and kind of shoot through some, you know, either tall brush or frag or something. So I kind of uh, adapted what that guy said to me uh, to, to use in certain situations. Hmm. That's interesting. And that's, I think that's where a lot of people fail because they get stuck on this, I need to hunt from, you know, 20 feet in the air or 15 foot in the air. Like instead of just adapting to the situation, like I mean, the, some of the biggest deer I ever shot and lost. Yeah, I mean, I shot this absolute giant. I mean, my stand was literally five foot off the ground, you know, six foot off the ground. And this deer was right underneath me. You know, like, most people would avoid the area. 
you know, six ways Sunday, but you want to hang on six, you can go in there one stick and put a stand up and you're good. You know, like if you're in a deer's bedroom, they don't expect you to be there. Or if you're, if you're in their, you know, their, their calm zone, they don't expect you to be there. Their guards down a little bit. So you could stand to be six off the ground. He doesn't expect you to be there. So he's not going to be looking for you. Right. You know I mean, that's what I found anyway. I don't know if that's a, you know, works for anybody else, but I just, I had literally, I mean, six year old, I mean, I've killed a six and a half year old deer in public, uh, two, four and a half, so three and a half. And I've killed some of these deer that just, I mean, they're so close to me. They never expected me to be there. So their guards down a little bit and you can kind of get away with a, <laughs> a horrible stand set up by history standards. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the point there really is just, you know, what you said just a few minutes ago, which is adapting to whatever has to happen in order to put you in a position for success. I think a lot of times, I think you're hundred percent right where a lot of times people get hung up in having to do, having to do certain things, certain ways, because that's the way they've always done them. Or that's the way someone else has done them and had success. It's like, you really kind of need to take every, every instance and every situation as a unique opportunity and figure out what works exactly. best in, in that situation. You know, it's like if you can't get quite as high up a, and I kind of had to learn that the hard way myself, which was, you know, I adapted it a little bit this year and it paid off for me. I just, you know, I was still up in a tree, but I, I, I got up to where I thought I needed to be that I had some back cover to your point. It wasn't as high as I would typically go, but it seemed I, I had the best breakup and the best cover at that elevation. So that's where I stuck. And I was bulletproof yeah. in that set where I couldn't, I mean, I had, to your point, I had deer walking right underneath my stand and I probably wasn't any more than maybe 10 feet off the ground. You know what I mean? Like 12 would be, would, yeah. would have been the max, but, um, you know, it's, I, I kind of, I've been guilty of getting caught up into doing, I got to get 20 feet up in the air or whatever. And some of that comes with some of the areas that I've hunted where it's, you know, deer do look up trees. So I need to try to get up to where I have a little bit of breakup underneath me and stuff like that. But um, the area where I kind of lowered my stand, it's like I knew the deer weren't going to be on as alert or as high alert so I could get away with a little bit more. But so I was curious, man, like, you know, all the all your approach and everything to how to how you hunt. Do you ever pay much attention to moon phase or barometric pressure or anything like that? Before we talk moon phases and barometric pressure with Greg, let's take a quick moment to hear a word about our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear. Today we'll hear from Exodus customer Chris Affelstad. Chris shares what he feels makes Exodus stand above all other trail camera companies. What I like best about Exodus as a company is the customer service side. They have a great product, and you know, I think that's that's a starting point today in the business world and in such a competitive industry of hunting and the outdoors world. You have to have a great product to even survive. But then on top of that, you know, the owners of the company are very responsive. So the first time I wrote an email, I heard back from one of the owners immediately um, addressing my concerns and answering my questions. My mom bought me my first camera as a gift. And so I had to help her walk her through the process of she's buying it, but shipping it to a different address. And they were very helpful and they were invested in, me being successful as a hunter. And so that's, you know, one of the biggest parts is and it helps them stand out above the rest was that uh, they really wanted me to do well. And then on top of that, just the camera's awesome. I, I was running four different cameras on one property and I went for my first pull in the spring, pulling that first card, you know, it's like Christmas morning. And I had 3000 pictures that were all amazing quality on my Exodus camera 
and I had 400 pictures on another camera that wasn't very far away and the quality just wasn't as good. So, I mean, it was, it was very clear that I got my money's worth. And that, my friends, is an Exodus experience. If you'd like to learn more about Exodus trail cameras, visit them at exodusoutdoorgear.com. Also, be on the lookout for the new Lift Mark II camera launching soon, and be sure to use the promo code TRUTH for a 10% discount on your next Exodus camera purchase. And now back to the show. The moon phases. It's, I mean... So important for me. Uh, I can, you know, every deer that I've killed, like every mature, like bigger mature deer I've killed, has been on a moon day. Uh, even wow. before I really knew much about the moon, <laughs> like it was, I go back and look at the dates and say, huh. and yeah, you mentioned Dan earlier. Like I knew about the moon. I've tried the moon guides. It wasn't until, you know, I stumbled upon Dan's how he used the first light, last light, overhead, underfoot that it kind of changed when I hunted a little bit. Like I'll take my days off for moon days. You know, I've mm-hmm. scheduled vacations for moon days and it, I just, I don't have any scientific data to back it up. I just have, you know, a lot of nice deer in the wall to back it up. And <laughs> it's, it, it's science it, to me, man. It's yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah and, it, and it works, you know, and I can't explain it. Like I said, I'm not a scientist by any means, but it, Whatever it is, because I know, like, a fishing, girl fishing, the moon definitely plays a part in the fish bite. So maybe it does with the with the animals. I, I I don't know on the, you know, the scientific level, but I have quite a few deer in my wall that can <laughs> will vouch for the moon phase when hunting, you know, specific bucks, uh, buck beds does pay off. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's one of those things I, where I don't know much that, that so many people follow it you know, uh, from all different walks of life. I mean, it's, it's the, the, uh, the hardcore public land hunters like you and a Dan Enfall, right. Follow it there. And then you have the opposite side of that, which is like, you know, the folks who have the manicured farms and stuff like that in Iowa yeah. that, that follow it as well. It's like, it, 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 it's not specific to any type of hunter. I've heard way too many people kind of uh, agree to it, that there has to be something mm-hmm. to it. I don't know if it's necessarily bulletproof, um, but I think that there's something enough. I think there's enough to it to warrant kind of paying attention to it. Um, you know, I yeah. know I, I experienced it once, um, but I'm terrible with paying attention to that type of stuff. Like that's one of those details where I have to get better at like watching. Um, but the one time I did pay attention to it, I went out on a piece of public land and I was like, Hey, it's a good moon day. I'm going to hit this piece of public land. Went out, never been there before. I scouted it once, I guess I should say, uh, found a tree I liked and went yeah. back, climbed it on a good moon day and saw three bucks in an early season. It was like yep. September 19th or something like that. Um, so that kind of, kind of sold me to a degree. And then I just never paid attention to it after that. So that's probably my, my own fault. But I know, uh, you know, you had mentioned earlier, you know, when you're scouting, like you're looking for, you're looking for droppings, you're looking for tracks, you know, to, to cut a track to kind of tell you what's going on. You know, if you see big rub, big track, big bed, you know, one plus one plus one makes three. You don't need to hang a trail camera to kind of, to be able to tell that. So I know that you're kind of an old school guy when it comes to that kind of stuff and relying more on your woodsmanship to, to get things done than, than, than technology. But I'm curious what your opinion is of the amount of technology that is used in, in hunting today, especially whenever you don't necessarily come to rely on it. I think it has a, it has a place like there, there does for me. There has to be a point when enough is enough. Like we're like I was saying earlier. Like there's always consequences to your actions. 
you know, if you run like on public, a lot of guys run camera and they have a lot of pictures of deer they never see. 2 a.m., you know, 3 a.m. That's, I, I, I never understood it, but I guess I grew up in an era where we didn't have those things to use. So we had to use our woodsmanship. We had to figure it out on our own or by, you know, overhearing a conversation at the local tackle shop that somebody's seen a big buck and you're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to back with this guy. He don't know me, I don't know him. And you, you kind of figure it out on your own. But cameras and technology, I guess they do have a you know, at this evolution of hunting, I guess, if you call it, um, if you're not using certain piece of technology, I do believe you're going to get, you know, left behind. I mean, we got Google earth, amazing stuff on our cell phones now. Like there's so many things available to us, but I do believe with the cameras, if you use them correctly to learn, which a lot of big name guys, you know, or obviously big name guys, but guys that kill a lot of big deer, they don't put a camera out over a big pile, you know, to learn deer behavior. If you use cameras to learn deer behavior, I'm all for it because you become a smarter person. You know, like I hung three cameras this year for the first time. I actually run cameras like all season long. I put one up on a rub line and two up over scrapes, primary scraping areas or scraping areas. And they pretty much sat there. You know, I, I didn't really check them. You know, I walked through the area. I'm like, all right, you know, not much going on. But I learned so much from cameras as being out there by deer doing what deer do naturally without human interference, without scent being put out, without food, you know, minerals or anything. And it would take me years. Like I, the things I learned this year from those little bit of cameras, I didn't learn, I didn't learn in 25 years of hunting. So they, they do serve a purpose. If you can learn to use them in a way you become smarter, I'm all for it. You know, like I'll, I'll run a few more cameras this year, same thing. I put them in different areas on rub lines outside of doe bedding areas and to see what kind of knowledge I can get. We'll go through the pictures. Cause you can learn, you know, pictures tells us, you know, what's that uh, picture is worth a thousand words or whatever. Right. <laughs> whatever that thing is. Right. And you can learn a lot, but I do believe people use them for the wrong, you know, they don't use them correctly. They right. use them because they want to know what deer, what kind of time stamp a deer over a bait pile or over you know, a dripper or a scent thing. If you take that food out and that, that scent that you're putting out, out, that deer's not going to be there. So you're not really learning. So you're really hurting yourself in the long run. Like you're, you're you know, that short-term gain for a long-term loss right? Yeah. mentality. Yeah, I think um, I think a point you made earlier was that it's it's – it's that it has a place, but it's how it's used, right? It's, you have to be mindful of how you're, how you're employing it. Like, I think, you know, some of the technologies, as far as what you mentioned, like Google earth or whether it's like a, a hunting map app, you know, for, you know, being able to see boundary lines and, you know, wayfinding and stuff like that. I think all that stuff's super valuable, especially, you know, in instances where, you know, like a guy like me, I'm going out to a state I don't typically hunt. And I need to get some quick intel because I got like one day to put boots on the ground and do a scout during a, an August day before I go out and hunt it in November. You know what I mean? So it helps me kind of expedite that that process. But I think you're right whenever you get to some of the more intrusive type of technology where you really need to use it for a specific reason, I think is what it comes down to. It's not have a have an objective in mind that you want this piece of gear help you to figure out. 
You know, I mean, that's what it is. Like, are you wanting to yeah. see? Is is there a certain wind that is making the deer do something different, right? Are they traveling a certain route on a certain wind? You know what I mean? Like that's something you can learn from and then you can yeah. apply over and over. Um, so I think it's kind of setting your objective, yeah, exactly. you know, and, and getting the most, getting the most out of it. You know, it's, uh, you know, folks who put, you know, out, you know, whether it's cameras or whatever, and they, and they incessantly check them. I mean, they're, they're doing way more harm than they are good to themselves. It's, it's a valuable tool if it's used, right. It's kind of like bringing a hammer to fix a car, you know, it's like great tool, wrong application. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and with, like I said, with the cameras, like deer that, you know, like, like I, I hunt all pressure areas, like public pressure areas, like the deer, they don't know it's pressure. Like they, they grew up in that. So being pressured doesn't bother them. That's all they know. They don't know non-pressured. So they handle pressure a lot better than I think most people you know, take you know, think they will because that's all they know. You know, if you're, if, you, if you're born in a situation, you know, you don't know anything else. You're in there, you, you know, that whole scenario molds every aspect of your, of your life. So they're used to people walking in, you know, bird hunters, hikers, and they just learn to adapt to that, like uh, necessarily avoid it, but know when to come through and when not to come through. And with cameras, I think people are getting like said, with the intrusive, like they're checking it once a week, and that knows you know, uh, a deer that's been around you know three or four seasons. There's never been human sign here on a regular basis. All of a sudden, there's a bunch of human sign over here, and he might his camera might produce pictures for the first week or two, maybe even three weeks. But after a while. The, cam- the pictures become few and far between. Why is that? Because that deer's already patterned that person. Like, wait, that's, that smell is fresh and new. That's never here. So I'm going to back off and I'm going to, you know, skirt this wide 50 yards. Or this tree. Like, he might not know the camera's there, but he knows that sense on that tree. Well, he's just going to just bypass that tree. Right. You know, like I've seen it. Like, I've seen deer literally bypass ladder stands 50, 60 yards, bait piles, because they know they're danger. You know, they don't have anybody in there, but they've been programmed, you know, through years of, you know, repetition. They're like, I'll just avoid it. You know, that trail's just going, like, you know, and you get yearlings, a year and a half going there, but them all mature does or them, you know, the bucks, you know, most of us are targeting. And we're like, I'm just going to, you know, skirt this area wide, 50, 60, 80 yards. Right. And like I said, if you, and if I think people just take a step back and try not to make it easy, like it's not, you know, it's, it's not supposed to be easy. I mean, in the 80s and 90s, you know, there's reason not many big deer were getting killed on a regular basis. Only a few select people were doing it. It's hard to pattern deer right. doing what deer do. Like, it requires a certain mindset. Like, you got to give up everything. Like, I give up family time, personal time. Like, I don't really have much of a life outside of, you know, family and playing and, and shooting in 3D archery. Like, I don't, I don't hardly fish anymore. Um. Uh, you know, all the things like long, long bike rides, mountain biking, that's my bikes are downstairs collecting dust. Like you got to trade up one thing for another. And well, we all we, of a sudden just shifted gears. It sounded like you and I just <laughs> entered a 12 step program. You know, it's not And cameras. It gives that people a false sense of like, yeah, I'm doing something good, but are, are you really? Cause a lot of guys are on cameras and I'm still not killing deer. They're running, you know, all these, you know, they ain't even got farm guys that aren't even hunting public. They run cameras and ladder stands on these farms or leasing. They're still not killing like quality deer. And it's like, doesn't that bother you? Like something you're doing is not working. Why keep doing it? 
<laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, man, but I want to shift gears here real quick. Cause I want to make sure that we, that we, that we cover this, you know, I know you had mentioned once or twice earlier about, you know, uh, you know, you have a camera along with you often in the woods and I know you're a big self filmer, you know, so I'm just curious, you know, how did you get started with the self filming? And I know that you also have some news, um, that you recently, uh, Joined a, joined a crew, uh, which I was super happy for you, man, and glad and glad to see. I don't think it could have happened to a more deserving per- person. But if you wouldn't mind sharing what that is and kind of how you got into the filming bit, yeah, the filming was. Uh, I don't even know why I bought I bought, I bought a lone wolf arm. And I didn't have a camera, like I just bought an arm. <laughs> I was like, I'll buy one, and it, it sat here. It sat here for like a year, and I was like, I should probably buy a camera for that. So I literally <laughs> went and bought a. a Canon Vixia that Dix had, and I took the Lone Wolf camera armor part, and I sanded it all because it, you know, it's a plastic. I sanded it down so there's no edges or anything, and I packed it full of synthetic Erlis grease, and I used the stock Lone Wolf everything up until this year. Same camera, same everything. It was cheap. I had, you know, less than four hours into it, and actually, the first time I ever took the camera out, I killed deer on film. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, this is so amazing. You know, replay it for my friends. You see the birds chirping, the sunrise, like, and I was hooked after that first day, you know, and it was, uh, like a labor of love. Like I, I, I was, I didn't shoot deer. Like I tell myself, I got a camera. I'm not going to shoot a deer unless it's in frame. And I've had to let bucks walk because I can't get the camera in frame, which is, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's a horrible feeling. <laughs> and I just kind of like it just from the point of impact, you know, like, I, I mean, I, I love in the point of impact cause you know, what's going to happen. You know, should I get on that deer? Because you shoot a deer, you know, that last 15 minutes of light, you're like, was it a good shot? Cause it happens so fast. Right. You, you question, man, that's a great shot Get down there and your arrow's green. And you're like, I could have swore that was a great shot. And next thing you know, you're blowing the deer out. So yep. camera for me was a great, you know, uh, recovery tool. I, you look at the film and the film's great. I'll get down there and search for the hour. The film's not great. I'll either sit in a tree or I'll climb down super quiet and back out. And it just kind of became like a labor of love for me. Uh, much, <laughs> a lot of heartache. All right. But also a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of success with it. Right. So let's, ta- let's talk about you know, that success. I, man, think I, I know you have some, uh, I know you have some, you joined, a, you joined a crew of folks that you're going to be, that you're going to be kind of working with a little bit. Why don't you uh, give us the drop on that? Yeah. Curtis, like I've been following Curtis for a long time on YouTube. Like I just put my stuff up on YouTube like two years ago. I had film like hunts. I quick edited and I just, I didn't even bother putting them on YouTube. I wasn't a big social media guy and I follow his stuff and I just think he's, He's got a gift, Curtis, you know, behind the bow, Curtis Abel, like he, he's a fantastic storyteller. His footage is amazing. Like he gets the cinematography end of hunting. Like he makes it look like an art form and he kills just amazing deer and film, beautiful storytelling. Like I get inspired watching his videos to make me want to be a a better videographer. Actually this year, he gave me some pointers. On like what arm to get and what kind of next camera upgrade to get, and I pick his brain whenever I can about stuff because when it comes to you know film stuff, like I, that's it's like pennies to me. I don't understand it. 
I can just point and shoot. Like I'm good at getting to the middle of the frame, but as far as frame rates and when I should be filming and, and color, I, I don't know any of that stuff. But Curtis asked me to, you know, join his crew because he likes what I'm about and he, you know, respects what I'm doing and I respect what he, what he's doing. So it's kind of a, it's a good fit, I think, for both of us. Yeah, man, I'm know, looking. To be, I'm looking forward to seeing what you what you uh, what you put out this year because I definitely I've, I've checked out all your all your videos and like I said earlier, I, I don't think it could have happened to a, a better or more deserving guy. Um, I think Thanks, you're telling, man. yeah, man. I think you're telling stories the the right way, um, you know. And I think it's interesting because I think the industry overall, uh, you're seeing like a larger move or push to this, you know, YouTube or social video content where. Um, people are more interested in that point and shoot kind of perspective because, you know, you look at some of these big, what I'll call celebrity hunting shows. And, you know, I think, I think some of them do a good job, I, but I think there are some that are still kind of behind the times a little bit when it comes to, you know, look, like guy shows up, gets in stand, shoots 180 inch deer, end of story. It's like, that's not the real, that's not real life. That's not what most people kind of go through. Yeah. You know, most people go through climb and stand at zero dark 30, sit all day, see one deer, climb out of stand, go home, work all next week, get back and stand on Saturday. Like that's the, yeah. that's the real story. You know what I mean? And I think guys like you kind of bringing that to life, having success is, uh, I think it's important for the, the integrity of, of hunting to be quite honest. Um, and I think, and so I don't think yeah. it's just entertainment. I think it's, I think it's a valuable learning tool and, and, and kind of sets a standard for what people should aspire to in, in terms of their hunting and their ethics and their, their ethos as they approach the the sport. I think you represent it the right way. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks man. That's, uh, like I said, it's weird. So to me, it's a weird thing. Like I avoided it like the plague because <laughs> you see all the negative parts of it and for me, right, I didn't think sure. I deserve, yeah, I didn't deserve special recognition because I didn't do anything special. To this, theme, to this day, I don't think I've done anything special. But to hear people like you and people tell me, you know, I inspire them to go out and learn and grow and make mistakes. You know, it's okay to not kill a deer. Like some guys, they have this stigma. They get killed deer, deer on film, they'll kill a year and a half old deer. And then they'll say, well, it's not the deer I wanted, but I got it on film. That drives me up a wall. Me too. If it's not what you wanted, don't shoot it. Like I don't, like I've gone three years without killing a buck. Yeah, I didn't see the buck I wanted to kill. I shot some doe, you know. But I got, I got no one to plead. I, I didn't compete with myself, you know. So I'm not putting out content to some guy in Washington go, man, this guy is cool. I'm putting out content that is me. Like whatever I post on social media, like that is me. That is not. I, I'm not doing it so you know people think, oh, oh wow, he's he's a pretty rad dude. I'm doing that because. That is me to the core. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not in for for the, you know, if you're getting the hunting fame and fortune, you're getting the wrong business. Right. Not you only know, that. the wrong line of work or whatever. <laughs> you want to be. Right. Yeah. Hunting, <laughs> there's hunting, money to be made, but. I, I was just yeah. going to say, hunting is yeah, one of those jobs where it'll, it'll make millionaires out of billionaires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know yeah, what I mean? So, of love. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And two people will sell their soul for that little bit of attention. Yeah. And I'm not about to like, I, I got a good job. Like I, I, I'm not doing this to, you know, I, if I can make money out of it, great. But statistically speaking, I'm not going to make any money out of this. I just do this because, well, it's what I enjoy doing. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's what I like. To, it's, it's funny. It's, I, I follow Randy Newberg, you know, he's a big Western hunter. He's got a, he's got a, yeah. he's got a pretty good, um, 
you know, he's a pretty good digital platform TV show that he has out now. That's, that's, that's great. It's a lot of elk hunting and, you know, kind of big game hunting, you know, more, more of the Western type of bit. But, uh, you know, he said his, his TV show, his wife always tells him it's the best job he's ever paid for. Um, and I was like, that's, yeah. it's a hundred percent true. I was like, it's just kind of a labor, labor of love, man. You gotta, you gotta be kind of crazy about it and you gotta love it. you know, and it's, and, and it rewards you in different ways. It doesn't have to come in, in, in forms of, of dollar signs. It's the, the time you spend the, in yeah. the timber, I think is, uh, it makes you a rich man or a woman in terms of your soul. If, if, if I, if, you know, if I have anything to say about it, at least that's kind of like what I think. Um, but I, it's uh-huh. speaking of, I, Speaking of Western hunting, man, I, I wanted to make sure we touched on this. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we're both prepping for a Western hunt this year, right? Oh yeah, so Southwest how, Montana elk. Nice. So you're you're prepping. <laughs> so what are you doing to get ready for? I did see a funny picture of you on Instagram where you might have packed your pack a little bit full for a full for a uh, an outing the one day. So what are you doing to get ready for the terrain and the uh, the altitude? Uh, uh. So I've I've spent years snowboarding out west. I spent a lot of time flying out west. So the, the I'm used to a little bit of altitude. I've had altitude sickness. Um, I've definitely pushed it pretty far up in you know Utah and some of those places. So I don't want to make that same mistake again. So I've been just hiking with weight. And the best advice I can give somebody is get a pack that fits you. I have a midget torso. <laughs> I have a sixteen and a half inch torso. And it's hard to find packs that fit a 16 and a half without spending $800 on a pack. Um, right. I've had to make a mistake. I bought, I bought three packs before I found one that fits me. So thank goodness to that because it makes carrying weight way easier. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, just um, a lot of hiking. Um, I entered that train to hunt challenge here in PA as a kind of ramp up my training a little bit, put me a little, make me a little bit more accountable for my training. Mm-hmm. And I'll just, like I said, I, I hike, you know, in, in the mountains. I spend a lot of time hiking and fishing. So I just plan on hiking with, you know, 60 pounds on my back pretty much whenever I go out and just get used to carrying weight and just keeping a slow, steady pace. Like I've had four knee surgeries, so I'm not going to be, you know, running up and down mountains by <laughs> anytime soon. So, Everything I do is just get my body acclimated to that weight and just slow and steady. You know, I'll be like Terminator. I just won't stop. I'll right. just keep a nice, slow and steady pace. <laughs> you just happen to show up at the spot you're supposed to be in the right time, but with the slow, steady, yep. uh, slow, steady pace. Yep. Yeah, man, I, I hear you. Exactly. It's, it's funny you're doing the train to hunt thing because I was thinking of doing that. I was planning to do it with my buddy that I'm going out west with. And you're kind of making me feel bad now, man, because I kind of we didn't we didn't sign up for it yet. I know that we can. I did start training it as though I was going to do it. It's like if I'm doing uh, all my training with a weighted vest, like a 20. I usually carry 20 pounds whenever I'm doing. I'll do like, uh, I guess, more like MMA style, like fight training uh, type of stuff. And then I'll, you know, of course, work cardio in there, which the MMA stuff is kind of a high intensity workout. So it's kind of cardio oriented, too. Yeah. And then I'll usually do, you know, one time a week just with my work schedule, I'll usually be able to get out and do like a three mile run and I'll do that with a 20 pound vest, um, to kind of get, you know, keep my cardio yeah. in check. But I have to say, man, I chickened out on the, uh, the old train to hunt. We'll see if I, if I end up entering yet, but, uh, good luck to you. Maybe I'll see you. Maybe I'll see you out there. Yeah. Like my body, my best friend, he's going out while, you know, lifelong hunting partner, he's going out to Montana with me in the country on our own. And he, he's done strongman competitions. Like he's a big fitness guy 
and he never loses. He always pulls. And I have physical limitations. Like I'm a really good shooter, so I'm not worried about the the shooting aspect. He's good at the physical aspect. He's he's a deep shooter, but he's not on on my level. And he's like, you never want to put him right. I'm like, Rick, you realize like I have lots of hardware and I can't really move at a fast pace. He goes, oh, we're putting him. So he keeps me he keeps me pretty motivated to stay consistent because he does things that he wants to win or or do well. So I. He's keeping me honest. Right. That's, <laughs> That's funny. Sure. That's funny, man, because the guy I'm going out with too is like he's he's a workout dude. You know, like he's in super shape. And that's like when he when he called me, he's like, Hey, we doing that, that train to hunt thing? I was like I was like, Yeah, man, we can do it. He's like, 'Cause I'm not he's like, I'm not going just to compete. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I was like, Great. I was like, I'm not sure what I got myself into. So what it sounds like to me is it sounds like you and I should swap partners. And and you and I should be a group yeah. of, the, of the old guys just trying to finish. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're called the turtles. Right. We're exactly. slow steady. <laughs> That's right, man. So hey, man, I know I've kept you here for a little while. I have just one more kind of group of things I wanted to kind of kind of talk through here before yeah. before I let you go because I'm always interested and all the folks I'm talking to, you know, what they're kind of, what they're kind of carrying and what their setups are. So, you know, what kind of bow are you shooting, you know, sight and strings right now? Right now, I mean, I have six bows here. They're all different manufacturers. Uh, I like, I like all bows. Um, I'm a big grip guy. So if the grip fits me, I'll shoot the bow. I mean, I got a new breed. I have a, a diamond carbon cure. I got a bear. I got a PSE. I got a high country. Uh, I see two PSEs, and yeah, I think that's it. So I, I shoot, you know, I got all different poundages from 50 to 70, and, you know, I, I, I like variety, you know, and I, I like having multiple bows on hand, so if something happens, I'm not missing a day of hunting, because right. that drives me up the String, you know, I uh, shoot 60X. I think they're uh, great strings, and they deliver fast. I've I've used a lot of string manufacturers, a lot of local guys around here that build string. I you know I build bows for people. I tune near the house, and nobody wants to wait two weeks for a set of strings. So you got to go with the bigger manufacturers just so you can pump out volume a little bit faster for you. And 60x have been absolutely never had any issues with them. So nice. I'll keep shooting them until you know until ever. Right. <laughs> Probably for always. You know, Unless somebody's throwing me some money to shoot something else. <laughs> right, right. Heard heard that. What about uh what about your 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 sight and stuff? What are you shooting there? Um, I got I mean I I like sword. They're durable, built like a tank. Um I just picked up a black gold for uh my elk trip and uh total archer challenge. But a lot of my sites are the cheapest sites you can buy because you know, hunting the marsh, like I got you know, I call them marsh bows, I got maybe four hours wrapped up in a bow. If it's going to be laying salt, it's going to be, you know, I got cheap arrows, you know, I'll spine, you know, I'm not tuning the arrows, cheap arrows, I'll get you shooting well out to 40 yards, but most of my shots are relatively close. Right. So I just, I call throwaway bows, you know, ain't no sense of having a thousand dollar bow, you're going to drag through either frag or salt. So it gets destroyed, you know, right. Uh, I'm not about that life. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I know you also are working, don't you do some stuff with the guys from uh tap there? They're a PA company here. Yes, absolutely. Uh, same. He makes. I've, I tried his stabilizer. I've seen him on Instagram. Pleasantly surprised. I mean, absolutely blown away at, at what his 
they don't because I got one bow my swan bow it's like a vibration machine you know the bows I bought off a guy blew up like 12 times so I'm sure there's some stress cracks in the riser but I got the bow for 100 bucks you know so I shoot you know it's pretty much you know I use it as a, a waiting stick to get across the river once <laughs> so it's kind of a <laughs> I don't care much about it but I put that stabilizer on and it was like wow this bow handles a lot better you know doesn't you know, feel like it's going to vibrate out of my hands when I shoot. And him and I, we just bull, you know, just bull crapping back and forth. And, you know, he asked me to be on his team and some input. And here we sit. You know, he's been, he's been good to me. Um, his product has been, you know, I got him at all, but, you know, what, three, three sets of his bars on my bows. And I can't be happy with him. Nice. You know, I, I've been trying to align myself with smaller companies. I can, you know, actually talk to the guy that's either making it or manufacturing it because, you know, they're, they're small businesses, you know, they're, they're a small guy like me. So I want to give them guys my money before, you know, some of the bigger names, right. you know, they deserve it, you know? Yeah. I agree, man. I totally agree there. What is, uh, what's your camo camo pattern of choice or your, the, the hunting gear company that you prefer? Do you have anything in particular that you, uh, that you kind of gravitate toward? This year, I started. Well, I was told to check out this Scree gear, S K R E. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out of Utah, I do believe, and I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, it's, it's definitely geared towards you know the the mountain type hunting, but I wore that camo, said that digital type, you know, camo, and even in the swamps, you know, in these six, seven foot off the ground, I literally had deer look right through me, which. It's weird because the cameras sometimes don't really match the trim one, but whatever it does to human outline, it's that digitized pattern, it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> you, you look like it don't work, but it works. It blends into you know, um, the ground, the trees very well, and the deer literally, it seems like they look right through you. Right. Uh, which is weird in a way. Yeah, because uh, it doesn't. I never worked all yeah, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like it would work. You know, I remember whenever I first kind of saw some of the, the digital stuff coming out, I was kind of like, yeah, I mean, that's not going to work. But I, I agree. It's like I've worn some of it and, you know, have had the similar experience where I've had stuff just kind of look right through me, which, you know, kind of blows your mind. But so what? Uh, so, yeah, like so, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, sir. No, go ahead. What'd you say? No, I was just gonna. I was gonna say, you know, I, you know, I know we were talking about your bows and kind of how you set the those up. So, what are you, uh, what are you looking at for for broadheads? Are you a, a fixed guy? Or are you a mechanical guy? Uh, I do both. Um, you know, I've had great success with both, and I prefer fixed. Like, you know, uh, in the reeds, I got shoot through some, you know, some uh, cattails and stuff. I prefer heavy arrow with a fixed blade. Um, I've shot them all, you know, tricks were always, uh, like my go-to head. And then this year I started shooting, you know, the RAD, the radical archery designs, fixed blade, the, the four blade madman. And it's, uh, it's one hell of a broadhead. Right. Uh, so like I said, uh, not, a, they're not a small company by any means, but they, they make a, a great product and the, the price is fantastic <laughs> that's nice. what's always a plus you know, because you know if you a lot, a lot of times you're shooting through a deer i'm not getting full penetration because you know or blows from either so close to me or i'm so hot or, or close to the ground but the arrow is breaking off or you know it's hitting rocks or something the last thing i need to do is then you know a crap ton of money on arrows and broadheads every time i shoot a deer 
Right. You know? Yeah, I hear that, man. No. So, I mean, I've kept you here now for a little, a little longer than than an hour. And I want to be sensitive to your to your time here, and uh, but I do have one oh, final. Man. I do have one final question, man. It's uh, I always like to kind of go on a hunt with uh, with the folks we have on here. So if you wouldn't mind, take us uh, on a stroll down memory lane with the uh, with you and uh, tell us about a, a memorable hunt. It can be, you know, one that you had a harvest, or it could be one that you had a near miss, whatever the case is. But just give us, you know, the details along the way, the the time of year you're hunting, um, you know, what state you're hunting in, and every detail from the from the time you hop out of the car till you get back to the tailgate. All right. Um... I had a couple written down on this one. There's so many good ones. Nice. Uh, I will talk about the a perseverance hunt. It's um, I call it the gap deer. It's my first buck. Uh, I think 2011 or, or 12. But my buddy Rick, I'm going to Montana with. In high school, he always dreamed going to the mountains and killing a buck. So you know, as life happens. You know, we separated, I moved away, he got married, you know, we kind of lost track of one another. And then I moved back to where, you know, moved back home. We met up and we started hunting again. And we went up to the mountains and we hunting a, another a Jenny Jump for a while. And then my dad told me I should hunt, you know, the water gap, Sunfish Pond. So I bought a pop map and a compass and away I went. And for five years, <laughs> It was a, a big learning curve because you go from a, a flatlander to, you know, I'm, I'm hunting the mountains now. Like, right. And it was a, a, very, a very long, rough learning curve. Didn't know about, you know, thermals, didn't know about any of that stuff, really. You know, I knew about them, but I didn't experience them like, you know, I did up there. And as time goes on, you know, I end up killing a doe up there. You know, that was always a gun three-hour rag out by myself, which was entertaining. Yeah. But... <laughs> I wanted to step, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to step my game up, and I wanted to shoot a buck, and so I started, you know, finding those, you know, really targeting buck up there, and and learning my craft, honing my craft, I should say, fine tuning it up there, and for three years I hunted there, you know, every fall, every winter, and I scouted there, you know, maybe six days a year, you know, six different sessions because it's only three hours away, and for three years I found I didn't see a deer. I didn't kick a deer up. I didn't see a deer, nothing. Wow. And that, yeah, that fall, I killed that. Uh, I was working two jobs at the time, and I called my buddy up. and was like, let's go to the Gap on Saturday. He's like, really? I was like, just a date. He goes, we're going to drive two hours. I'm like, listen, I'm waking up at 1 o'clock. I'll be at your house at like 2. We're going to do it. So sure enough, I get off work at 10 o'clock at night, come home, sleep a couple hours, get to his house, you know, around 2, and we're on the road. Get there for, I got a two hour, hike, you know, two plus hour hike back, and I gotta set him up. So I walk him to where he's gonna go, cause he don't, you know, he said he doesn't, he didn't scout up there. So I get into a tree, Tom, where to go? I got a, you know, there's a bed, bedding area, you know, 100 yards away, or whatever. I should be filtering through these scrub oaks, and I, I get him set up. And I look at my watch. I'm like, good lord, it's gonna be daybreak in like a half hour. So. You've been hunting the mountains. You know, you can't run up the mountains. I literally ran like a quarter mile in the mountains with my stand on camera, like the whole full, full gear. I ran like I was you know, like 15 years old again. And I get to my tree. Yeah. And I get the climber set up and I climb all the way up. I turn the camera on and I get set up and I just do a quick little interview with the camera. And I look down 
and here comes this buck coming right at me. And it was like, what do I do now? <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm in panic mode. You know, you can, the video's on YouTube. It's a, it's a pretty good video. <laughs> but I watched this deer for almost 40 minutes. And he's going, he's feeding in, he's feeding out, he's feeding in, he's feeding out. And I, can't, I got the camera on him. You know, it's, it's all herky-jerky because I'm shaking so bad because a deer, uh, 20 years I've been dreaming about this moment. 20 years. It is here. The, the, the time is here. He's in my wheelhouse, and I can't get a shot. And he's feeding in and he's feeding out. He's feeding in. I'm like, dude, either come in or go. Just, I've had enough of this. I can't. My heart's, you know, beating out of my chest. <laughs> and he starts feeding away. And I'm like, this guy. And I get, get that gut wrench feeling of like, so close. Right. And all of a sudden, I look up and he's turning and he's coming right back. And I'm like, oh, oh, all, all right. I grab, you know, I set the camera where I think he's going to be. And he gets out and I stop him and I pull back and I can't get my release to go off. Like I, I shoot a, a spike release, like a hinge spike release for hunting. Right. And there's no moving parts. The only way it gets to go off is I shoot back tension and I freeze up. You can see it in the video where it's like a long haul. like, all right, what's he doing? <laughs> and I finally get the release to go off. You know, I end up like he drops down like a heart, heart shoot the deer. You know, he runs like 60 yards back flips. And, you know, you can see it in the video. It's, it's an amazing, <laughs> from what people tell me, it's the best post reaction of a shot <laughs> they've ever seen. Ever. Like, it's like, un, it's unreal. That, that sense of accomplishment, like for six years, I busted my tail up there learning. Like I was never a mountain. Like I learned it the hard way. And for three years, I didn't see a deer. Like I didn't kick a deer up. I didn't see nothing. That's crazy. man. And the person, yeah, persevere through all that, and like I said, it it was just unreal. Like I'm I'm getting choked up just talking about it, and so I I give him like 20 minutes. I'm trying to text Rick. Like I can't even text my phone. I'm shaking so bad. And finally, I'm like I don't even text him. I'm just gonna get down. I get down and I run to him. You know, like 100 miles an hour. Like, like I'm 12 years old, and I'm I can't even speak. I'm like, I, big, big, I shot, big. <laughs> And we walk up to it and Ricky's like, oh, oh my God. And he's like, you did it. And you can see it all on film, but it was just such a surreal experience. Like my lifelong hunting, you know, best friend, partner, you know, we hunted almost since the beginning. He was there when I killed my first deer. I was there when he killed his first deer. I was there when he killed his first biggest. And now he's there when I kill like my biggest deer today. And it was just the greatest feeling in the world. And to drag that toad of a deer out it took us five and a half hours because we didn't have call. I don't think we had call check in, but I was going to get him mounted. Neither of us, we've never caught up a deer before. So we were like, we're dragging this deer out. Right. Talk about pain. And then Ricky's a big dude, you know, he's doing the train home. I mean, he's strong and he's built like a tank. I'm not. <laughs> so, like, at one point in time, I knew had no grip strength. We take. To, uh, a belt, wrap around my hand, wrap around his horns, you know, and I'm basically dragging, you know, just because I got no no grip strength left. And on that, like, on the Appalachian Trail, we had people from Iran, China, all these people stop and take pictures with me and my deer. So <laughs> me and my deer are worldwide. Like, you know, we got women, in, I mean, 
women in full head to burkas. You're just seeing their eyes. They're taking pictures with me and my dear. And they thought it was like the coolest thing. And nobody gave us any slack for being, you know, hunters or stuff. Everyone was so gracious and grateful for what, you know, because they asked me, you know, if it died fast. And, you know, I showed them, you know, where the interest in it was. And I had people, you know, shake my hand. People hug me. You know, um, some of the, the Chinese, the Oriental people, I mean, they were like bound to me. Like I got so much respect for what I what I did and what I was doing. And it was uh, like a surreal experience. Like I'll probably never have that rush of emotions in my entire life when it comes to hunting. From the the 20 year dream finally realized to dragging that deer out and getting respect from complete random strangers from other parts of the world. It was a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a lifetime hunt. Never, never be, you know, experienced again. Man, that is. And uh, that was probably good out. Dude, it's that unbelievable. Yeah, <laughs> so like that, yeah, yeah, man, that's uh, uh, and. That's that's one of the best. I'm just still choked up thinking about it now, like all, all the good times. And, it, and that means that deer was aged at six and a half years old. And if you ever hunted the Wood Gap, you know it's Orange Army Central. They drive it. They push it. Hikers, everybody. And to kill a deer that's that old and that type of terrain is a whole nother, you know, that added a whole nother wrinkle to the mix. Like, that'll I'll never top that deer. I can kill a 190 deer. It'll never top that deer at six and a half and heavily pre- pressured mountain buck. Right, man. Yeah. That story is, I mean, that's one of the best hunting stories <laughs> I've ever heard, man. And it's and what is super cool about that is <laughs> his, you know, just like is the, the perseverance, the, the work that went into it, doing it all the right way. And then on the drag out, you know, you like, like you were a great ambassador for the, 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 the of, ambassador for hunters you know what i mean like that's the mm-hmm. that's the image that's what we want people to see you know what i mean is like yeah. is that that level of respect that we have for you know for the animal and our and our craft you know and it's like and when you you mentioned you were getting choked up it's like i know what you're saying man it's like it's one of those things where i never had the experience you know to to that magnitude but this year whenever i, I hunted public land it was it was a, it was a tougher hunt um, and, you know, I was putting my time in and did my scouting and was reading my sign. I didn't have any cameras or anything out, you know, it had barely been there before. and was just going basically off of what I was seeing in the woods, set myself up and took, took my biggest deer to date. You know what I mean? It was one of those things. And, you know, everything that could have went wrong on that trip went wrong. Like the first day I went up in the woods and, uh, it's the big woods and I had my GPS and I had some stuff marked from the summer, some trees I was thinking I wanted to get into. And I get in. I hiked in about 45 minutes and you know, that area is so thick. Everything looks the same. You know what I mean? Like it does, there's no, there's no like real, like, you know, like, Hey, go to this stump and turn right. Like there's just a ton of stumps. Cause it's a, it's an old, <laughs> it's, it's an old strip mined area. So it's like, there's just a bunch of down trees and a bunch of stumps and just briar and brush everywhere. And it's like a wall of brush. And so you get in there and get turned around and it's like, everything <laughs> looks exactly the same. And I walk in in the dark, you know, and my GPS 45 minutes into my hike in dies. Like it must've been on in my, in my backpack for like a day and a half. And so I'm standing there trying to figure out how to, how to find the tree that I was supposed to go to. And then it went from that to like, I got to figure out how to try to get out of here. You know what I mean? I managed to find the tree that I was trying to find, but it took me, it took me a while. And then the next day I go to start hiking in 
and my headlamp dies on my way in in the morning. And so I'm crawling through brush on my stomach trying to find my tree in the dark. And like, it was just one disaster after there was another something else that I did. I don't remember what it was like the third day, something else happened. It was just like every hunt, something went wrong. And then I got the biggest deer that I ever got and made like the best shot I might ever make in my life. And I was driving back with that deer and it was just like, I don't know. Like I saw like the most amazing rut activity during that, during that trip to where it was just like, I was just super thankful that the deer gave me an opportunity to just be part of their environment for those days. You know what I mean? That I got to witness that happen, just, you know, their Mm -hmm. natural environment. Like I was a, I was a participant, not just an observer those days. And that was, and it just, and it got to me, you know what I mean? And I think that's what, and and hunting should be like that, man. It should touch you, you know, more deeply than just releasing an arrow and and pounding beers with your buddies. You know, it should, it should touch you a little bit more deeply than that. Yes. It's gotta be, it's, it's, I mean, taking the life of an animal, it's, it's not a game by any means. You know, it's not a sport. Killing is not a sport. Like it's not a game. And, this day, like when people call hunting, it's a sport. It's not taking the life of an animal. It's not a sport. Right. You know, it's not a game. But this is, I mean, life and death. Like this is the struggle. You know, since the dawn of time. You know, predator prey type relationship. And there, you need to respect the animal. You know, give them the utmost respect because that deer or animal, whatever you're hunting, they're going to give you their best because they they want to survive. Like they're ingrained their DNA to survive they're at all costs. Three legs, getting shot in the neck, they're going to survive. Yep. That animal, in, in my mind, deserves the same because that animal is going to give me 100%. It's right. not going to give me 110. It's not going to give me 90. It's going to give me everything it has, 100%. Yep. And for me, that animal deserves that in return. Yep. You know, no, no, no. Oh, I, I mean, it drives me crazy when people downplay it. It's not, it's not the bottles after, but it's box. So it, it's good. Or, it's, you know, uh, it's smaller. That drives me up a wall. Like don't shoot or don't kill something. If you're not going to give it the proper respect that it deserves. I hundred percent agree it, with that. It, it, it's totally disrespectful, you know, to, to everybody, to the animal, you know, to mother nature, you know, to images and hunter's image, you know, your own personal image for that matter. Right. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I think, I think with that, man, I think it's a good place to, to kind of end. Cause you know, uh, I know that I have a lot of respect for how you, how you get the job done. I know the folks out there that, you know, that follow you have a lot of respect for how you, how you get after it too. You represent all of us the right way. And I, I appreciate you doing that. And, and, uh, and I know that you'll continue to do so, but, uh, but also want to be respectful of your time here this evening and, uh, and let you get going. But, uh, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind, man, let, let some folks know, is there anywhere that they can find more information out about you or, or, or follow? you and, and just kind of kind of watch you through your journey yeah like i said instagram bowhunt fiend and uh the youtube channel same same name um said so it's not the best as yeah, it's not the best filming and editing but the deer is center of the frame <laughs> so it's it's very yeah, i think it's very well for the equipment i'm using and it's it's real it's not fake it's not scripted and just i'm trying to work on a facebook page but, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm not a big, you know, when it comes to social media, I'm kind of virgin still. So, uh, that's all I got YouTube and there's some scouting videos and how I set up some hunts, how I set up some marsh hunts, some mountain hunts. Yeah, man. Um, I, 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 I definitely encourage everyone out there. Content. 
I was going to say, I definitely encourage everyone out there listening to, to hop on and, and follow you on, on Instagram and, and YouTube. I, I, you're a great follow on Instagram. You put up a bunch of great videos of when you go out and scout and, um, and watch things. And there's all, or when you're, you're scouting, looking for, looking at new, you know, for new sign or new buck beds and so forth. And you do a good job of kind of bringing people along on those trips and, uh, and, uh, you know, and you always add a little bit of humor into it too, which is always, always nice. It's <coughs> nice to see folks that don't take themselves so se- too, too awful seriously. You know what I mean? So I do appreciate that as well, man. But, uh, uh I do appreciate you coming on, man, and spending some, spending some time talking deer hunting with me. It's been a, it's been a blast and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll connect again soon. And I might have to have you, uh, let me tag along on one of those, uh, one of those swamp, uh, swamp scouts one day. Ah, oh, you're always open. Awesome, man. I'll definitely hit you up on that, brother. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. Just want to thank Greg for joining me. Be sure to check Greg out on Instagram at bowhunting underscore fiend. He's a great follow. The guy's always getting after it, even in the offseason. He puts out some great scouting videos on Instagram. And, of course, you can watch for videos coming from him on the Behind the Bow YouTube channel as well. And before I get out of here, I just want to make sure to thank all of you for tuning in and be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, And if you're liking the podcast, please leave us a five-star iTunes rating. We'd be very much appreciative of that. And finally, I need to give a big shout out to our partners at Whitetail Institute of North America, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands for helping us make this podcast happen. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.